Welcome, all you happy warriors. Thank you for tuning in to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And thanks for being part of the show by helping promote it and let people know about it. Because this is the show where your rabbi reveals how the world really works. And uh, a, a charming lady in Pennsylvania uh, just sent me a little clip of her three-year-old daughter, who is one of our youngest happy warriors. Not the very youngest, but one of our youngest happy warriors. And, uh, but she's certainly the youngest who knows how to say how the world really works. Uh, listen to her. How the world, how the world, ready, works. Now, one of the biggest advantages of being a happy warrior is that it makes you into a stronger person. In other words, once you resolve that you are going to embrace the challenges in your life with joy and with happiness, and you're going to seize upon them with a smile on your face and a jaunty step to your stride, you become a stronger person and you become more effective at dealing with other things in the future. And the kind of things you can deal with are bigger and bigger things. In other words, a growth strategy for anybody to become a bigger and more effective human being is to become a happy warrior. Well, now uh, let's take a quick glance at news this week. Well, uh, the uh, Afghanistan removal um, conducted by American President Joe Biden, who, by the way, out of his head pulled up this idea to leave on September the 11th. Like, what is he thinking? that there is some kind of good significance to this. Well, we went into Afghanistan on September 11th, and guess what? It's the anniversary, the 21st anniversary, uh, 20th anniversary, and we're going out on the same day. What's that? Uh, that wasn't the doing of his predecessor. That was in his head. And uh, why? It just caused an enormous problem because uh, it put uh, the Americans under time pressure, not the Taliban and certainly not the Islamic terrorists. And so, not surprisingly, uh, off they went and um, inflicted a debilitating blow by means of a, a bomb um, in Kabul and uh, killing many, many Americans and many Afghanis. All in all, it was an absolute disaster. And uh, Part of the disaster, of course, is 20 years long. Uh, George W. Bush, an early American president, uh, went into Afghanistan, and instead of just doing what he had to do, uh, he decided he was going to stay and build a nation. He was going to turn Afghanistan into New Hampshire or uh, um, England or Wales. He was just going to turn it into another westernized country. Well, that's not really how the world really works. You see, uh, if 
I had to uh, place blame for America's utter failure. 20 years and $2 trillion, and Afghanistan is exactly where it was at the end of 2001, 20 years ago. Uh, Taliban in charge, terrorists back in the country. Nothing has changed. From the point of view of America, we have squandered the lives and we have squandered $2 trillion. Now, that is such a huge sum of money that it really lies beyond the comprehension of most of us. What I mean by that is that if I show you Uh, three dots on a page and I say how many dots do you count them you know unless you are that three-year-old listener to the podcast you don't your eye immediately assimilates the pattern of three and says no there's three how about if I put down five you'll probably get that as well six dots If they're in the arrangement that you find on dice, you'll get it right away. If they are a more scattered random arrangement, then you may well not get that it's six. When we get seven or eight, uh, most of us are beginning to not see it right away, and we do do a little bit of accounting there to cheat and get the number. So uh, if I put down 25 dots, you definitely won't get them right away. There are certain things that our brains can wrap themselves around right away. Uh, There are others that we can't. Can you improve these? Yes, you can. Indefinitely, no. There is a limit. But when it comes to money, we have something similar. Uh, There is a limit to what we can wrap ourselves around. And uh, it has something to do with the, the kind of size of monetary transactions that we're accustomed to dealing with in our ordinary lives or, or uh, in our work. But beyond that, we no longer have the intuitive grasp of what that number means. And, uh, you know, there are lots of different ways of, of trying to comprehend $2 million. But, but you know, here's, here's what worked for me. Uh, $2 million, no, not $2 million, $2 trillion, $2 trillion boils down to about $300 million a day over the last 20 years. We've spent American money, and remember, this is money that has to be taken from hardworking American families who pay taxes. And so, uh, $2 trillion over 20 years, okay, so, you know, you can you can take out the 20 and you see it becomes $100 billion a year, and you break that down to uh, uh, per day, and it's roughly $300 million a day being spent, $300 million every single day, $300 million. Let me give you an idea of what that means. If over the last 20 years, the government had not used that money for uh, pouring it into Afghanistan for absolutely nothing, and you might ask, by the way, where is it now? And as I mentioned you last week, it's in huge mansions owned by uh, former Afghani generals. 
it's uh, it's in corruption that's flowed former head of the afghani government mr ghani ran away with about uh, 100 to 200 million dollars uh, basically it's in the hands of people not the afghani people but it's in the hands of their leaders including i don't doubt uh, taliban leaders and also perhaps even terrorist leaders because the bond between muslims whether they are Afghani government or whether they are terrorism, this is something I'm going to try and explain, is much closer than the bond between Afghanis and their American paymasters. I know that's unpopular for people to hear, but, uh, but it is true. And, um, and if $2 trillion had not been spent on Afghanistan, and the government would still have had that money as taxation, then this is what they could have done with it. They could have fixed up the post office and dropped the rate of a first-class letter to 30 cents. They could have fixed up Amtrak so that there would be decent train service in the United States of America. They could have taken every pothole out of the interstate system and they could have eliminated the fees for entry to America's national parks. The national parks are fantastic, but the entry fees and the uh, permits have just been going up and up and up and up. And um, all of that, instead of wasting this money in Afghanistan, the United States of America could have fixed the post office, could have fixed the, the railway system, could have rem uh, taken away all the potholes in the interstate highway system, and could have eliminated fees uh, for entry to the national parks. All of that could have been done. And what was done instead? Wastage. Absolute waste. Nothing to show for it. What sort of clowns are running America? If I had to blame somebody for it, as I said, I would blame... Uh, now, bear with, bear with me here, because some of you who are regular listeners, you're going to say, oh, here he goes again. But bear with me, because I've thought about... Um, how to make a plausible argument for this uh, over the last several days. I'm not just spouting it out. And I think, I think it's true, and I think I'll be able to show you that it's true. I'm going to do my best anyways. And, and that is what I'm going to blame is America's descent into secularism. Basically, what happened to America from about 1962 onwards, uh, with increasing force, all right, and, and I'm going to tell you in a moment that Harvard University, I'll come back to this, but Harvard University started as a Christian college, has just hired as a chaplain an official self-avowed atheist. So here we are, the high temple of American progressivism, Harvard University, has hired a high priest who doesn't believe in God. He has no faith. He's an atheist. What better example can you get of what it is I'm trying to describe? That America has gone downhill because of the uh, essential abolition of Christianity in the upper levels of the intelligentsia, of the movers, shakers, thinkers, and influencers, people in politics, people in uh, uh, entertainment, uh, people in the bureaucracy of government. It's gone. Now, what on earth does this have to do 
with a fiasco in Afghanistan? Well, let me explain. We, when I say we, the United States of America has believed that military and economic power can change the Islamic world. That's what they've believed. Now, absolutely nothing that has happened in the last 400 years suggests that when I say 400 years, I'm going back to um, 1683 when the Ottoman army, the Muslim army, besieged the city of Vienna. And Christian soldiers, Christian knights uh, of Europe all united, and they came and drove the Muslims off, and they broke the siege, uh, inflicting damage on the uh, Muslim Ottoman army that it was never going to recover from. That, by the way, happened on 9-11. That happened on September the 11th, uh, 1683. And so that uh, Muhammad Atta and his merry band selected September the 11th, 2001 for their adventure, that makes perfect sense. But why Joe Biden of the United States decided that the exodus from Afghanistan of the United States military must also be on September the 11th, you got me. I mean, what is he thinking? What a bad mistake that is. Anyway, uh, everyone can see it's a bad mistake. Now you don't need me to tell you that. So, uh, because now why is it that America has thought all these years that it's possible to um, convert Muslims into secular bureaucrats just by the imposition of military might and economic power? Nothing has happened to 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 demonstrate this to be true. And, I mean, gosh, after the calamity in Afghanistan of August 2021, is it possible that clowns in the United States government are going to persist with this notion that it's possible using our nation-building abilities we're going to convert Afghanistan to New Hampshire or to Wales? Is that what they're really thinking? And that's what happened. I mean, for the last 20 years, the United States has been trying to impose a sort of universal civilization on Afghanistan on the basis that all human beings are exactly the same. Because if you're not a Christian, you're not a Jew, then you and you're not a Muslim, you automatically assume that religion is irrelevant because it's irrelevant in your life. And it's irrelevant in the lives of all the people you work with in the United States government. And it's irrelevant in the lives of most people you socialize with. So you assume it's irrelevant in everybody's life. What a stupid mistake. I mean, how much clearer could the world of Islam have been that in telling us, hey, we're serious about Islam. And Christians have always understood this. And Jews, when I say Jews, I'm going to have to be a little clearer uh, Jews who take the Bible seriously as the word of God. I mean, yeah, there you go. That's it. Uh, and I understand, obviously, that I've got many, many wonderful listeners uh, who do not have faith, who do not regard themselves as Bible-centric, who do not have a place for God in their hearts. No, there's, I understand there's many, many, many of you. But even so, you're kind of at the point now in world history where you need to decide 
who you're with. Because what I am about to show you is that those are the two sides. Those are the two different ways of running human society. You can do it in a godless way, and you can watch President Biden of the United States doing just that right now, or you can do it in a godly way. Doing it in a godly way doesn't mean that you have to stone adulterers. Doing it in a godly way doesn't mean that uh, you have to uh, give the land back to the person you bought it from every 50 years. No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean that there is a Judeo-Christian Bible-based ethic on how human organization ought to work, particularly in the areas of sex and money. That's really, really important. So uh, they tried to impose um, American values, what they saw as American progressive, modern, civilized values on Afghanistan. Most Afghanis probably figured that men and women are different. And along came these Americans trying to make them woke and trying to make them realize that men and women are fundamentally the same. They didn't really go for it. Um, most Afghanis are probably not that crazy about promiscuity. But along came Americans telling them, hey, this is the modern way. It's no wonder that they took America. Honestly, I mean, I, I know this is ridiculous and, uh, and uh, I love this country. I just hate what progressives have done to it. Uh, I immigrated to the United States of America, not because I had to, um, but because I wanted to. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's very, very sad what has happened in the United States of America. Very sad indeed. So America goes over to Afghanistan and decides to uh, pay them enough money to relinquish their belief system, which did not work. The Afghanis had no hesitation in taking the money that America was throwing around, and uh, and they even fostered this belief, oh, you're building a nation, oh, how wonderful. But uh, we're now getting data that a surprisingly large proportion of the Afghanis who were armed to be part of the police system in Afghanistan uh, took their money and took their guns and went into business for themselves, setting up their own roadblocks at which other Afghanis had paid to pass. Uh, They really thought and do think that America is a very silly nation. They really do think that. And meanwhile, American politicians... Uh, proceeded to assume that Afghanis cared as little about Islam as they cared about Christianity. They never dreamed, and they still don't, by the way. Most American bureaucrats and politicians, there are wonderful exceptions, but most have no idea that America is what America is because of Christianity And furthermore, Afghanistan is what Afghanistan is because of Islam. You know, you've got to get it. You you really have to understand this. Um, And it's not something that everybody gets. Politics is nearly always the result of the culture. The way I've always put it is that politics 
is nothing other than the practical application of a group of people's most deeply held values. In other words, their cultural beliefs. So culture shapes politics and religion shapes culture. That's right. The English poet T.S. Eliot pointed out that uh, the word cult we now think of it as the the origin of the word culture, and the word cult we think of as Jonestown in South America and people drinking Kool-Aid and listening to a charismatic leader and committing suicide or whatever else cults do. But that's not what the word originally meant. Cult meant a religion. And so when uh, in the early years, 2,000 years ago, they spoke about the cult of Christianity, they were not talking about it in the same sense that we use the word cult. They meant religion of Christianity. And Eliot makes the, the point very persuasively that a culture is simply the practical application of those groups of people's religion. And the, if the religion is secularism, and atheism, which is a belief system, absolutely a belief system, uh, you will get one kind of culture. And if the culture is a different kind of culture, if the culture is a God-centric uh, belief system, then you'll get a different sort of culture. And even now, you just have to ask yourself, if your car is going to break down in the middle of the night, would you like that to happen in a largely Christian small southern town? Or would you like to ha that to happen? in a large city that has been under Democratic Party domination for 40 years? It's a very simple question I'm asking. I'm saying, where do you think the culture is more successful? And so how hard is it to see that Christianity makes a better culture than secularism? And Christianity makes a better culture than Islam. Because if that were not the case, then America would not be gaining, what, 30, 40, 50,000 new Afghani uh, immigrants during the months of August and September of 2021. Uh, there's not a lot of Americans trying to go and settle Afga in an Afghanistan, but there are a lot of Afghanis who are trying to cling to airplanes and drop to their deaths anything in order not to live under Islam, but rather to live under Christianity. That's what they want. But this is all something utterly unknown to the uh, geniuses in uh, uh, the State Department, in the Justice Department, and the Commerce Department, and all the other departments of the federal government. That's just how it is. And so, meanwhile, America is dealing with chaos around the Muslim world, and they don't get it. By the way, um, Robert Nicholson writes so beautifully, and he gave a wonderful example of what America is doing. You know, they find trouble in the Middle East and trouble in, uh, in, in, in Islamic locations around the world, and there's trouble with Muslims blowing up things in London, and there's trouble with Muslims blowing up things in Afghanistan. I mean, come on, these are not Quakers doing it. They're not members of the LDS church. These are not law-abiding, family-minded, fantastic Mormon citizens running around blowing up stuff. It isn't. It's really all Muslim extremists, Muslim jihadists. And uh, Robert Nicholson writes, so um, America looks around 
and they see Muslims creating tremendous problems in Yemen and in Libya and in Nigeria, northern Nigeria. And um, what happens is America thinks they're all disconnected. They try and come up with a little patchwork way to solve Libya, and they kill Gaddafi, then they run off to try and solve another little problem somewhere else and another little problem. Uh, what, uh, what he says is, finding piles of broken china around the room, they diligently go about gluing the pieces back together, not seeing the elephant nearby whose feet are covered in ceramic dust. Isn't that beautiful? What a great example. You've got an elephant in the room, and it's smashing China, and the American government runs around gluing together the sauces and the teacups, not even noticing the elephant in the room. It's great. And, I mean, look, I understand that they're not, they're not evil people. They want to believe that people are intrinsically good and that uh, uh, f religion is just primitive. It's, you know, if you were born into it, fine. If you weren't, better not. Um, you know, it's uh, uh, your, you, th these are just the way you were born. It doesn't mean anything. But virtually every American progressive, fails utterly to comprehend that religion is a non-negotiable truth for hundreds of millions of people around the world. Hundreds of millions of, uh, of Muslims, hundreds of millions of Catholics, hundreds of millions of evangelical Christians, and uh, also a few million Jews. It's, it's a reality. But their inability to grasp this is because of their spiritual emptiness. And this is why I'm saying that even if you yourself, listening to me now, are not interested in religion, not interested in Bible, ambivalent about God, maybe, you know, maybe that's what it is. But whatever it is, uh, you know, it's you, you're uneasy about it. Maybe you had a bad experience as a child with religion. That's happened to many people. Uh, whatever it is, right now we're living in a world where not understanding faith, at the very least, puts you at an incredible disadvantage. Not only aren't you able to understand what's been going on in Afghanistan for the last 20 years, but uh, you're also not able to understand the lives of a good proportion of your customers or your employees or your uh, co-workers because the truth is, um, people of faith in America, Jews and Christians of faith, as well as, as uh, LDS uh, Church and, um, and, uh, and, and Orthodox Catholics, we've all learned to keep quiet. We all have learned to live in the catacombs, as it were, to get down, get out of sight, and not let people know of our faith, because all it's going to do is cause us trouble in a culture that has become a dominantly secular culture and where the state religion of America is, in fact, secular fundamentalism. And, uh, and so the reason when I speak about the five Fs and speak about how important it is that you grasp the five Fs and you work on them, one of those is faith. And a number of people have said to me in, in, uh, in various live events at which I've been teaching, 
they've said, well, I definitely want finance. I definitely want uh, family. I definitely want fitness, my physical fitness. And yes, I'd like to friends as well. I just don't see that I have a need for faith. Okay. Um, I, I would recommend um, an open mind on that and just do some thinking on this. You are at a tremendous disadvantage without faith in exactly the same way that America's calamity in Afghanistan is directly due to most of America's decision makers assuming that because they are not Christian, nobody else cares about their religion either. They really assumed that the Islamic principles and fundamentals of Afghanistan are irrelevant. That's what they thought. And so uh, it's, it's worthwhile understanding this. Um, Islam, uh, you know, and yes, Malaysia might disagree with Indonesia, and after all, um, uh, you know, uh, some countries, uh, some Arab Muslim countries have made peace with Israel, which a lot of other countries do not agree with. So yes, it's not as if the Ummah, that is the Arabic word for the 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 international nation of Islam, okay, the, the people of Islam. Uh, but but they do have many things they do they do all agree on you know the centrality of the Quran and uh, the idea that their lives are best lived in a country that blends religion and politics ideally Sharia law that's what most Muslims I you know what I can't say most but it's certainly an underlying principle of Islam I believe it to be most Muslims but if you ask me what makes me believe that I couldn't give you actual numbers although I suspect they exist um, I think Muslims believe they should have power over non-Muslims to make sure that they can enforce uh, the law of Allah and um, and these belief systems are are what drive uh, Al Qaeda and drove Bin Laden, and uh, probably the the Taliban fighters in Afghanistan as well. Uh, they their wars against non-Muslims, Jews and Crusaders, Jews and Christians. That's how they see it. And um, uh, and meanwhile, secular America, which is unfortunately in charge of almost everything. Um, completely is oblivious is completely oblivious of the Hebraic roots of the United States of America. So uh, this this is what is going on, and uh, it's something that it's worthwhile understanding. All of that was um, the first item of the news of this past week. Um, there's there's other news in this past week, and that is that the International Monetary Fund has given a, a bonanza of six hundred and fifty billion dollars um, in um, uh, spending credits for the member nations of the International Monetary Fund. So, for instance, uh, Zimbabwe is one of the smaller countries; they get a billion dollars. See, numbers. Now, you might say, what? A billion dollars. But that's three days worth of spending in Afghanistan. Three days is a billion dollars. I told you it's 300 million a day. So three days and eight hours worth, three and a third days. 
that's a billion dollars. So it's 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 odd, isn't it? Because you, when I say, can you believe that the International Monetary Fund is giving th- a billion dollars to a small country like Zimbabwe, um, and you think, wow, that's a lot of money. Yeah, three days worth of spending in Afghanistan over the last twenty years of whose money? Every happy warrior who is a citizen of the United States of America, and that's that's about uh, close to a half of our listenership. So from what I can gather, uh, about half of our listenership is is around the world. And, uh, and the International Monetary Fund is giving out $650 billion. Now, I could and perhaps should one day devote an entire show uh, to the International Monetary Fund and why it is that... Uh, it is such a disaster. But before I do that, um, you might be interested to know, like, who gives the International Monetary Fund the money that they're distributing? How about if I tell you one country gives more than any other country, a lot more? Uh, that would be the United States of America. One of the good things, one of the many good things that I think Donald Trump was right about um, was that he wanted to start cutting back the uh, involvement with the International Monetary Fund. Look, um, I, I'm i not going to do today, that's not the topic of today's show, so we're not going to do the International Monetary Fund today, but I will tell you what its mission is. I'm actually going to read their mission to you from their website, okay? The International Monetary Fund, or as we like to call it, the IMF, promotes international financial stability and, and monetary cooperation. It also facilitates international trade, promotes employment and sustainable economic growth, and helps to reduce global poverty. When I hear that, I want to run for the hills. The International Monetary Fund is governed by and accountable to its 190 member countries. By the way, that's exactly the same way like the United Nations is governed by and accountable to its 190 member countries. Oh, really? Really? The United Nations is out of control. It's been out of control for years. Well, guess what? So is the IMF. So is the International Monetary Fund. Let me tell you something. When um, you know, imagine you you heard a new government agency being established in your country. In my case, the United States of America. Uh, President Biden announces he's creating a new government department that's going to promote financial stability and reduce poverty. All I know is that that's more fingers in my wallet. It's going to accomplish none of its goals. This is all flim-flam because poverty can only be reduced by people trading with people. That's how poverty is reduced. It can't be reduced by governments. It can be reduced by governments removing the obstacles. It's by governments relinquishing some of their centralized power, by governments allowing citizens to own the land they live on, which is not the case in many parts, of most parts of the world, I would say. Um, I, I heard yesterday of a Chinese student, a university student from China, just arrived in the United States and shocked to discover that ordinary middle-class families own the homes they live in. Shocked. This is not common in, uh, in the entire world. So, yes, uh, the International Monetary Fund is a boondoggle to which America contributes four times more than China. 
And that's because China is a serious country and America is a silly country. I tr this breaks my heart to say it. It breaks my heart because I can tell you why I came to the United States of America and I can tell you why I did not come as an immigrant. I came as a visitor, quite sure that all I would meet here were obnoxious people telling me about how everything is bigger and better in the United States of America and how my mind was changed in the first three weeks that I was here and how I never left. Yes, I did become an illegal immigrant, that is true, but uh, I uh, quickly rectified that situation years ago and not by marrying Mrs. Lappin. She likes to tell people that she was a, uh, a passport wife, but she wasn't. I was already a United States citizen when we got married, when we met even. But anyways, and so the International Monetary Fund distributing $650 billion this past Monday. And um, yes, and, and this is going to smooth trade and it's going to take away global poverty and it's going to be so good and so wonderful all i can tell you my friends is that if you have the slightest opportunity to get a job in the imf grab it because it's a sinecure it's a great job because the money is almost limitless all they do when they need more is they just assess the member nations which basically means the united states and germany and japan and uh, and they pop so anytime you want to raise when you got your job at the imf when you want to raise no problem you just tell the united states government you need more money that's all so you get a job in the imf good for you and by the way if you can reach a handout and get me up there to get me a job there as well i'd love it and uh, if you can get a job in the United Nations, go for it. Same deal. Same deal. It's, these are rackets that are built on the back of American taxpaying citizens and, uh, and done by progressive governments, one after the other, that, um, that have caused the, the, the mess that Afghanistan is and even more seriously, the mess that the United States is in. And it is in a mess, tragically. Uh, oh, that it were not so. But it is. It's in a huge mess. So uh, in stories of this week, news of this week, Afghanistan, uh, International Monetary Fund. By the way, a lot of that money is going to African countries. And, uh, and then it's going to be handed out in African countries to who? To the people whose lives it would change? No, of course not. You know better than that. Uh, in further news this week, Vice President, American Vice President Kamala Harris um, issued a stern warning to China. And all I can say is that I feel sorry for Chinese government officials who are quaking in their boots in sheer terror at the strong words of Kamala Harris, who let the Chinese government know that she will keep the, her eye on them. She will be watching them for human rights violations. She will be watching. And uh, I just know that uh, all the senior staff of the Chinese Communist Party called an urgent meeting to discuss how they can possibly escape the eagle-like gaze 
of America's Vice President Kamala Harris, you begin to get a sense that uh, secular people, secular fundamentalists, another word for progressives, another word for socialists, another word for left-wing liberals, um, they're out of touch with reality, sure. And that, my friends, is another reason why you need faith. All right, now, um, I know a family uh, in... um, in, they live in Nevada, and uh, they are a wonderful family. They are devout Christians, but to the best of my knowledge, they're not affiliated with any church. They're not, they, but they have faith. And I guess what I'm saying is that if your beef is with quote organized religion, and yes, come on, I've been in a few synagogues that I don't particularly like either. Uh, but if that's your beef, that doesn't mean you have to have a beef with the good Lord, um, because that's a different story altogether. So when I speak about the five F's, and I explain, and, and I do, by the way, um, in a free ebook that you can get right now, you can download it for free from my website. It's called The Holistic You. And The reason it's called the holistic you is because I'm explaining why it is that the five F's of your life are all interlinked and that um, oddly enough, even though you might say, you know what, I'm an introverted person. I don't care much for friends. Uh, I care about family. I care about finance and I care about my fitness, but I'm really, I I just don't care much about friends and I certainly don't care about faith. Uh, One of the things I I show there and demonstrate is why those are all, in fact, all linked together. Um, So so there it is. You know, I'm not uh, I'm not putting notches on the bedpost here. I'm not uh, counting how many people have faith or don't have faith. It's all doing is uh, trying to provide you with tools for more effective living in more troubling times. And there is nothing more powerful that I can do for you than teach you how to keep a focus on the five F's. So um, we're still on news, right? And um, uh, I said earlier I would tell you about this amazing item of news. This has to do with the, um, uh, the University of Harvard. Yeah, that's right. Harvard University, my goodness. I mean, do do we realize what Harvard University is? The 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 uh, motto of the university is veritas. And that's because Latin used to be part of the standard curriculum at Harvard University, and veritas means truth. So, you know, yeah, that makes sense, right? I mean, what's wrong with having the motto of truth for an institution of higher learning? But um, the story behind the motto of Harvard University uh, is not quite so simple. Um, Harvard was established in 1643 as a theological college, as a college for Bible and for Christians. And the Veritas was short for the full phrase, which is Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae, and that means truth for Christ and church. Um, 
that's what it used to stand for. So it's not, it wasn't just Veritas, it was just that back then everybody knew the whole phrase, Veritas Christo et truth for Christ and church. And that was the basis of the university. Uh, the reason I'm telling you all this, whether you are in the United States of America or in any one of the dozens and dozens and dozens of countries now for which I have beautiful pins in my world map because you are listening from one of those great countries, um, you should all know that the most prestigious university in America, Harvard, along with its sister college, Yale, were both started in the 17th century as religious Bible-based schools. That should give you a little bit of an idea of how America was founded and how America was until the early 1960s. It was a Christian country. That didn't mean that if you weren't Christian, you couldn't live here any more than there are Christians and Arabs living in Israel. But nobody disputes that it's a Jewish country, right? Because they don't deliver the mail in Israel on Saturday and on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur. And in America, they don't deliver the mail on Sunday and on Christmas. It's a Christian country. Now, today, what I'm telling you now is totally unknown to the majority of people who run the United States. The clowns who caused the chaos in Afghanistan for the last 20 years, they don't have a clue of this, not a clue. So, um, with with... Again, I'm in news of the week, okay? I'm in news of the week mode. Uh, in um, So Harvard University, which today obviously is, a, uh, is very far from its founding, uh, but Harvard hires um, chaplains of various religions. They, you know, Muslim chaplain. They've always hired chaplains of various religions. The idea is that even if you are a, uh, a Catholic chaplain, you should, it's like in the military, right? You should help anybody who has a faith matter uh, of whatever particular faith he is. So Harvard's newest hire as, a, uh, as the new chaplain, Rabbi Greg Epstein. That's right. It's a rabbi, my friends. It's a rabbi, Greg Epstein. And um, and it makes me want to renounce the title of rabbi. Because if Greg Epstein is a rabbi, then I'm not. And if I am, then he's not. Or we're certainly, the word doesn't have any real meaning. Now, I'm sure Greg Epstein's a lovely guy. I have no reason to doubt that. But um, he uh, has made absolutely clear that uh, he's an atheist. <laughs> he's Harvard hired him as a chaplain. The word chaplain means a religious counselor. <laughs> he's not Christian. He's not even Jewish. He is an atheist. And um, that's what he does. He is uh, an atheist rabbi. Now, I know many of you are baffled by that because you say to yourself, there's no such thing as an atheist Christian. How do you have an atheist Jew? And the answer is because many people believe that you're Jewish because you're born Jewish. Now, that's not absolutely correct. Uh, you are Jewish if you do Jewish. In other words, if you live according to the dictates of the Torah as much as you can, and if you believe that the Torah is the word of God, uh, then you're Jewish. But a lot of people mistakenly believe that you are Jewish even if you were born that way. 
And so there are people who are born into a Jewish family and who have absolutely no commitment whatsoever to the fundamental tenets of Judaism. How about if I name three such people for you right now? Stephen Breyer, Elena Kagan, and uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is no longer alive, the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Who are these people? Well, uh, they were three members of the United States Supreme Court, three out of nine who were Jewish. By the way, isn't anti-Semitism a real problem in this country? My goodness, it holds people back, doesn't it? It's so hard to get ahead if you're Jewish. I mean, can you believe it? Only a third of the justices on the United States Supreme Court were Jewish. To just remind you that the Jewish population in the United States is about 1.5% at most. So... uh, 33% of the justices were Jewish, but Jewish by birth. And now, I don't know and didn't know any of them personally, but from everything I know, while they may give lip service, you know, it's possible they'll occasionally show up at a temple or they'll, or they'll say something about my Jewish heritage is what made me into a liberal. The bottom line is I have no hesitation whatsoever in asserting with complete confidence and utter reliability that the guiding set of values and principles for these three justices are not the values of the law of Moses and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the the laws and values of secular humanism. That's what it is. There's no question about it whatsoever. So Rabbi Greg Epstein uh, is of the same faith as uh, Eleanor Kagan, Stephen Breyer, and the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Same basic religion. And it's important to know that it is a belief system, right? Uh, Very important because, you know, Einstein spoke about relativity. Well, you know, if you're sitting in a railway carriage and the train next to you starts moving, you know, you startle because you think you're moving and you think you're moving in the wrong direction. You thought you were back to the locomotive and now you're going, you eventually realize, no, I'm not moving, train next to me moving. Um, the, in, in my worldview, from, from where I, the relative position of where I stand is that uh, the onus on, of faith doesn't rest on me. The onus of atheism rests on Rabbi Greg Epstein. See what I'm saying? Um, You've got to acknowledge that atheism is a belief system. And most normal people have a faith. Now, it may not be my faith. Islam is certainly nowhere near my faith. But how can you function in this world if you don't even understand that a very large proportion of the population on earth are people who would not only die for their religion, but many of them would even kill for it. That doesn't apply to, uh, to the Bible faiths, but it does apply to the Quranic faiths. But that's something that you do need to understand. Certainly if you're in politics, certainly if you work for the government, you'd think. But uh, the truth is, no matter what you do, it is helpful to understand a faith-centric worldview. It just makes life easier to understand. So there, there we go. Harvard uh, has hired a 
religious chap a chaplain of religion who is a self-proclaimed atheist so that's the uh, third last news item of the week the next news item of the week is that the supreme court um, has just dealt a blow to president biden but also to the um, center for disease control I'm not a constitutional scholar, but I, I do know a thing or two about the United States. I must tell you, I am baffled as to how the CDC can issue a regulation that people do not have to pay rent. I just don't get that. And um, uh, I do have somebody I'm going to be able to ask uh, very soon, and I will do so. But I don't understand. But nonetheless, the CDC ruled that um, people cannot, landlords cannot evict tenants if they don't pay rent. And this just got extended and extended and extended, and finally it got extended through September. It went to the Supreme Court, and it went a 6-3 decision that this is rubbish, absolute rubbish. This is a contract between two consenting adults, the landlord and the tenant. You pay the rent, I let you live in my house. That's it. And it's got nothing to do with anybody else. Now, if you want to save those people, you want them not to have to pay rent, well, then find a way to give them money to pay their rent. But to place the burden of their rent on the landlord, the only way that happens is in a secular culture in which people who own things are bad guys. And this is why even the word landlord has in American culture today, a slightly negative connotation for exactly that reason. It's so bad. Anyway, the Supreme Court ruled uh, 6-3 that uh, no, the landlord may con collect rent or evict the tenant. I mean, nobody wants to see people losing their homes, obviously, but if there are ways to help them, there must be ways to help them rather than placing the onus on helping them on the landlords. You know, it's, it's like saying, um, you know, everybody with red hair has to pay extra for welfare. They've got to pay more money so other people can get free money. Red-haired people, you, you're now going to be taxed double on welfare because we want to be able to increase the benefits for welfare recipients. Why just red-haired people? Why just landlords? Uh, who opposed this? When I said the Supreme Court ruled, nine members of the Supreme Court, uh, it, it was ruled 6-3. And so uh, who would be the three people who said, no, the landlords have to continue letting tenants live there for free so what if they can't pay their mortgage? So what if they lose their property? It doesn't matter. That was what was said by, guess who? Justice Breyer, Justice Elena Egan, and Sonia Sotomayor. Those are the three uh, justices two Jewish and uh, by birth and one not. Had Ruth Bader Ginsburg been on the court, I have no doubt whatsoever that she decided also uh, with the tenants against landlords that they can live indefinitely without being evicted. And the, the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, issued this regulation. It's weird. I'm going to try and get to the bottom of it. At the moment, I simply don't get it. So, um, 
Why do I point out? I mean, a lot of my Jewish listeners are going to be very uncomfortable because I, I really sound like a, a pretty competent anti-Semite, don't I? I mean, I'm pointing out how well-represented Jews are on the Supreme Court. I'm pointing out that uh, the Jews are wrong on the Supreme Court. I'm pointing out that Harvard's atheist chaplain is a Jewish rabbi. So I mean, this is pretty awful. And the reason I do it is because I believe that it is more important that I tell the truth than, I am, than that I am liked. And that's a strong statement because, like everybody else, I really don't like being disliked. I don't like being hated. I, obviously, I don't like any of those things, but I like telling the truth a whole lot more. And, um, and I do feel that where things have to be acknowledged, namely that secularism has destroyed America, I also have to acknowledge that a very high proportion, a majority of Americans of Jewish ancestry um, are secular fundamentalists. They have long abandoned the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they've adopted the faith, the government faith, the government-sponsored faith, of secular fundamentalism. I should point out that about 30% of American Jews who do take the five books of Moses and the Bible seriously, uh, they are all conservative in outlook. They all supported Donald Trump, along with many, many, many evangelical Christians and many Catholics and many LDS church. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but the majority by numbers are adherents of the faith of secular fundamentalism. And uh, in so being, they have inflicted considerable damage on the United States of America. The, um, the Frankfurt School, who came over uh, before World War II and dominated uh, educational intellectualism in the United States, uh, they were secular Jews. And this is a very big problem. Now, I know a lot of secular Jews who are lovely people. I know, I know plenty of secular Jews, and, and I'm friendly with many of them. But it, it doesn't diminish the reality that secularism as the faith of American Jews um, has been very damaging. Now, they're not the only secularists in America. There are not every progressive is a Jew, but 60 or 70% of Jews are progressives. Obviously, there are many more. Otherwise, the Democratic Party wouldn't be where it is. So uh, the Jews certainly give a lot of money to the Democratic Party, but they, uh, they don't have the numbers and the votes to be able to do it all on their own. So there's no, there's no unfortunately, no shortage in the United States. Uh, the same is true in the United Kingdom. And uh, there it is, progressivism damaging the country. Sweden. Sweden is in serious uh, straits. Progressivism says all people are the same. Progressivism said, why not bring in a few million Muslim men? Why not? All human beings are the same. Actually, all human beings are really a function of our beliefs, not of the things we know. Far more important, if, if you are going to marry somebody you really need to know the things they believe more than the things they know, really. Um, if, uh, if you encounter somebody 
in a democratic controlled city for the last 40 years and it's late at night and um, the city like all democratic controlled cities have a big cr crime problem and somebody approaches you and you're scared maybe it's two people approach you how about three people who approach you how about four guys approach you you worried yet okay well you should be until you find out what their belief system is. Well, wouldn't it help if I knew they were educated and they have bachelor degrees? No, because many of the people who went along with the Nazi extermination of the mid-20th century had graduate degrees. Yes, I mean, having an advanced degree is no protection against having the most terrible ideas. No, you don't need to know what these four men know. You need to know what they believe. And if, as they get close enough, you see they're holding Bibles under their arms, and you say, good evening, gentlemen. Uh, have you had a good evening? And they say, yeah, we've just come from Bible study. You don't have to worry. You're okay. You're safe. As a matter of fact, they'll probably help you if you need help. What you need to know about people is what they believe, not what they know. What a person knows tells you nothing about their value system, tells you nothing about how they're going to behave. Belief isn't a guarantee, obviously. It's not as if people of faith never do wrong. We do. But at least you've got a better chance, a significantly better chance. And now I have one more item of news on uh, the news of the week, but uh, before that, I would like to share a few letters with you, if I might. Uh, I love the letters I get from listeners of this show, and uh, some of them are, are private, some of them are uh, not things I want to share, but uh, some of them are, are lovely that I do, I do want to really share with you. So um, here are a couple. Uh, now, this one is a very short one, but it means a lot to me, and it's, it, uh, it says... I wanted to say how much I enjoy Susan's musings and the podcasts in general. Hello from Redmond. And uh, this is a letter from Pat. And Pat is the widow of the late pastor Ken Hutchison, who used to play football for the Dallas Cowboys and led one of the most vibrant, exciting, successful, and effective churches in the state of Washington. Um, Pastor Ken Hutchison was a dear, dear friend. Um, we did a lot of things together. We did a series of uh, stage appearances called The Jock and the Jew. And uh, one of the, the, the lines that always got a laugh was in the introduction, um, the master of ceremonies would say, and uh, in a few moments, I'm going to be introducing the jock and the Jew, and then Pastor Hutchison and I would walk onto the stage. He stood about a, probably about a foot taller than me, weighed a good 120 pounds more than me. He is, was, was a big man in many, many ways. And the Master of Ceremonies would always say, uh, so I'm about to welcome the jock and the Jew to the stage, and I will leave it to you all to try and figure out which is which. <laughs> okay, fine. That's how it went. And um, and so, uh, Pat, thank you for listening, and thank you for writing. Uh, I uh, can tell you that 
Susan and I miss your late husband a great deal. We really do. Um, now, I'd like to read this next letter to you as well. I may have to shorten it a bit, but anyway, let's see how we go. Uh, Rabbi, I just listened to your Afghanistan podcast. That was last week's, by the way. Uh, you were right about much. Our military, you were wrong about Afghanistan. I wish I could sit down with you and talk about this. I ran operations in Afghanistan against the Soviets. My daughter is a U.S. Army combat medic with multiple back-to-back -back tours in Afghanistan and Iraq. She received the Bronze Star. Uh, we could not have turned Afghanistan into a parking lot if we'd wanted to because the Soviets already had. Um, what I'd said last, last time was that um, I disapproved very strongly of President George W. Bush embarking on the nation-building adventure in Afghanistan. I said he should have gone in, got rid of the, uh, the Al-Qaeda, warned the Taliban of what was going on, maybe get rid of them, but say, look, we're leaving, but if you start up with us again, we'll just come back and flatten the country. Uh, we'll, we'll turn it into a crater. And so uh, this writer, her name is Karen, said, no, you can't do that because Soviets already turned into a parking lot. By the time the Soviets ran, they had killed or made refugees. Half of the Afghan population destroyed the land. The Romans did Carthage. Um, it will be centuries before some of the farmland and aquifers can become safe to use again. Countless children were maimed by Soviet toy bombs and so on. Okay, I'm, I'm trying to check that. Karen, I'm not sure I believe that um, it'll be centuries before much of the farmland in Afghanistan can be used again. Not sure I believe that, but I'm, I'm reading your letter. I hear you, and you obviously have been there, and I haven't. So I will dig more deeply into this. Um, and then Karen tells me about a little boy she encountered um, who, you know, had been uh, gruesomely injured by the Soviets. Um, then she spoke about a five-year-old little girl who'd been napalmed by a Soviet gunship. Uh, I don't doubt any of that at all. I know that's absolutely true. Um, she, uh, she speaks of uh, women being tortured by Soviet soldiers or what the Soviets did to the no question about it. Yeah, they really did. Um, and then she said, interesting enough, she said, I'm Jewish. I operate in Afghanistan because I take to heart never again. Occasionally, Mujahideen brought me singed pages from handwritten prayer books and scraps of Torah scrolls from synagogues the Soviets had destroyed. Uh, the Mujahideen were saddened and outraged at the desecration of holy books. In 1948, Jews from every Muslim country fled to Israel, expelled or voluntarily. Only the Jews of Afghanistan chose to return to their country of birth because their lives there were good and they lived in harmony with their Muslim neighbors. Uh, when I brought groups of Mujahideen to, and non-combatants to the U.S. to testify before Congress um, and two other countries on the speaking doors, they also lived with me in my home. I turned my mother-in-law suite into a dormitory for them. When we had to eat out, they asked me to take them to kosher restaurants. Uh, during World War II, local Nazis in every occupied country emerged, joined the SS and Gestapo, helped round up their country's Jews. The same would have happened in America had we been invaded and occupied. We don't know that. I'm not, um, Karen, I'm not sure I agree with you. I think progressives in America, and there weren't that many at the time of World War II, I do think progressives uh, would hand over Jews quite easily. Uh, I don't think Christians would. And I know they wouldn't because of many, many conversations that I've had. So I think you malign a good proportion of the United States population. 
Um, she says there was a huge American Nazi movement. No, there wasn't. There was a Nazi movement. It was not huge. That's not correct. Uh, factually not correct. Uh, the Taliban is the same. It is not of Afghan origin. It originated in Saudi Arabia, incubated in failed states like the Sudan. When the Soviets pulled out and America turned its back on the shattered land of the Afghans, no one was interested in helping the people restore their country other than demanding that the Afghans form a government, including a very... The result was a vacuum that virtually sucked in the vultures perched around the regions waiting to pick the bones. Like the Nazis, the Taliban is a magnet for jihadists, wannabes, lunatics, thugs, and opportunists from all over the world. Remember the American Taliban. Yeah, you're right about that, Karen. They were and are richly funded and owned by foreign sponsors and organized. Now they have billions of dollars of worth of American military hardware. You're right about that. And it's terrible. Afghanistan might be the richest country in the globe in natural resources. No, um, not even close, Karen. That, that is not so. They do have some oil. They do have natural gas, copper, zinc, iron, aluminum, tin, gold, silver, gems, uh, lithium, by the way, rare earth elements. But many, many, many other countries have considerably more. But they certainly have some. Um, it has the world's largest deposits of uranium and lithium. Um, no, not correct. Not the largest, but they do have deposits of uranium and lithium. Uh, the Soviets exploited those riches during their occupation. The U.S. did not. And um, I, I have some something to say about that as well some other time about uh, why America did not use oil. You know how much America was paying the American military for the last uh, 20 years? Karen, you may not know how much, although in the military maybe you do. Do you know how much we were paying per gallon? The oil was being brought in by ship and truck to Afghanistan, $200 a gallon is what it was costing to, f to bring gasoline to Afghanistan. Why didn't we use the local gas? Well, I'll tell you why some other time, but it was a mistake. Um, now the Taliban is selling Afghanistan minerals to Red China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. They haven't yet, but they will. You're absolutely right about that. When we were in Afghanistan and Iraq, we had Iran flanked. Now it's India that's flanked and not by anyone timid or morally restrained. And uh, this is Lieutenant Colonel Karen, Mc Karen, sorry, I nearly said your last name, but I won't, um, retired United States Army, and she lives in North Carolina. Uh, I really appreciate the letter, Karen. It's amazing, absolutely amazing, and, um, and incredible to hear from you. I, I really, really do appreciate it. So uh, that, that was one of the letters that I wanted to read you. And um, there was also one more, and then I'll give you the last news item, and I'll let you be dismissed from class today. Um, in the podcast about uh, three or four weeks back, um, I just on a whim, I played uh, about eight or nine seconds of, uh, the, of two pieces of music. And I was just curious um, with, if people knew them. And uh, I can't tell you how many people wrote back giving me the correct... I should have given them the next week. I didn't. Um, but the two pieces of music, very short. I, it was really not a lot to identify by. But the first was um, Fats Domino playing Blueberry Hill and was the opening piano chords of Blueberry Hill. And the other was uh, the opening of the piece uh, On the Rebound played by Floyd Kramer, the great pianist. I think he, he played with Elvis Presley, if I'm not mistaken. But um, 
uh, great, great pianist of that period and the great Fats Domino as well. So um, here's a letter from Andrea. Andrea writes about the tunes from July the 31st. I never get entertainment names of artists, movie singers, actors, and actresses correct, but I love music, and I do recognize both songs you played, but for the life of me would never get the name of them correct. We'll take a stab at the artists. I should not waste your time, but like you said, this is fun. For the first one, I would guess Louis Armstrong or Ray Charles. Nope, Andrea, the first one is Fats Domino. And for the second one, says Andrea, Jerry Lee Lewis or Ray Charles. Uh, nope, it was Floyd Kramer. <laughs> but, uh, and she says, I'm sure, but that era of music was great. And it sure was. And um, thank you very much indeed for uh, taking a crack at those. But I'm amazed at the number of people who actually got them right. I'll tell you that. And I'll do one more. Now, regular listeners to the show uh, will have heard me read letters in the past or you'll have heard me speak about different listeners. So you probably already know that on the far, lonely, frozen north coast of Greenland, not Iceland. Remember, Iceland is green and Greenland is icy. Iceland is a fairly hospitable country, a lovely place to visit. I've been there. But Greenland is another story altogether. And on the northern edge of Greenland, there is a remarkable young man, and a remarkable young woman. Now, they're not married to one another, but God willing, they soon will be. Right now, the young woman is not quite old enough, but um, they will be getting married perhaps within a less than a year, I'm thinking, maybe. And boy, would I love to be at that wedding. And um, anyway, this is um, uh, CG and Nia. And um, Nia, who uh, knows several languages, if you don't mind, uh, writes to me in English, fortunately, and, uh, and her English, you, you're not going to believe that she writes in, English is, is, another, is not her first language. Um, she is an indigenous person. She's an Eskimo, accepting that's not the right word, it's Inuit is the right word. And... Um, she and CG are, are really, I mean, based on their letters, it, extraordinary people. I'm so proud to have them as listeners on this show. And she writes the following. <clears throat> Hello, Rabbi Lappin. Sometimes I know what I believe, but not why I believe it. Your teachings help explain to me how the world really works. Yeah, that's how she wrote it. I love your show so much because often I intuitively feel something is true. But when I hear you explain it in technical terms, it makes sense. The physical world is a reflection of the spiritual, and therefore your technical explanations are a good lesson to bridge what I feel with what I know. Um, what do you say? I mean, just listen to the English, for heaven's sake. Um, uh, she says, I don't wish to be macabre. Do you know that word? Macabre, M-A-C-A-B-R-E. Okay, she misspelled it, but the word's perfectly identifiable. I don't wish to be macabre, but there is an extremely important aspect of this in my life that I wish to share. It's a depressing subject, so I understand if you wish to not read further. Did you know that Greenland has the highest suicide rate of any country in the world? Doctors, and I use that term disdainfully because I've met many of them, tell us that it's because we live in such a harsh land. Really? I didn't believe that lie when I was six years old. 
20% of Greenland is inhabited by non-Inuit, mostly Norse. By Norse, she means Danish, Norwegian, Swedish, people of the Scandinavian countries. You know what the suicide rate among them is? Zero. So 80% of the population represents all the suicides? Nope. The demographic breakdown of Inuit is 60% female, 40% male. Suicides among female Inuit, almost zero. But it gets worse than that because among the male population, the suicides are almost entirely among men between the ages of 19 and 25. That's right. Around 8% of the population represents 93% of the suicides. If Greenland is the cause, then it would be more even. It would be girls and boys evenly, old and young evenly, Norse and Inuit evenly. Sounds right to me. I can't argue with her analysis, but it gets better. Um, she goes on and speaks about the largest concentration of her people, the Inuit, are in northeastern Canada. And she speaks about what a small portion of the population they are, 2% of the population, 45% of the suicides. And that's not northern Greenland, um, right? And she says um, it, there's no way that, that, and it's not the weather, so the Inuit over there have identical statistics to Greenland. All the suicides are young men between 19 and 25. They represent 90% of the suicides in this area. Same demographic. Um, and she says, uh, so, you know, what's the explanation? I'm, I'm skipping a little bit because it's a long, very, very detailed letter, which I, I studied every word. I really did. Um, she said the highest suicide rate in the United States is among Native Americans. They are 137% more likely to commit suicide than any other demographic. The breakdown statistically put the category as a, okay, I'm not going to go into this. <clears throat> but then she comes up with something really fascinating. And that is, um, oh, oh she, she quotes another uh, person. She dismisses the total idiot um, who says, oh, yeah, the CDC says that environmental factors are the leading cause of these suicides and they mean global warming affecting the environment hurts these people more. She's talking about the American Indians, uh, Native Americans, and, um, and that the CDC says they are being hurt by global warming. And she dismisses that with such absolute contempt. Um, she says, you read that correctly, Rabbi, global warming. Okay, I took a break so you wouldn't hear me curse. Um, so then she goes on and she identifies, she does a lot of research, and there's one group of American Indians, Native Americans, who do not have a suicide rate. You know who they are. Seminole tribe in Florida. And the reason? They are the only one, and here she goes on, she basically, and I, I mean, I wish I could read the whole thing. It's a little bit too long, but I really love this letter. She analyzes everything out, and she shows that the Seminoles are the only Native Americans who don't accept government handouts. They're business people, and indeed, if you're in the Seminole area in southeast Florida, you will see, I mean, very, very affluent areas. They do just fine, and it's not. It doesn't look like an Indian reservation at all. And she says, in her mind, the cause of the suicides is when you are recipients of handouts, when you don't support yourself, when you don't make a living, that is the most uh, depressing and destructive thing of all. Uh, Native Americans live on government handouts to the, uh, to the tribal reservations. 
the Inuits live on handouts, and she makes a distinction between a very small proportion of Christian Inuits and the Inuits who uh, keep to their um, to their own native belief systems, and. Um, there it is. Uh, it's, it's a remarkable letter. And then her next letter after that is, um, she says, uh, I wanted, you to give my, wanted to give you my sources for where I get all my numbers. And there's a whole bunch of, of links here to the, uh, the sources of all the information she's listed. And, uh, and I want to tell you something. I think she's absolutely right. I think she's nailed it on the head. I don't think, if she wrote it up as a paper, I don't think it would be accepted in any American university, but I do believe she's 100% right, and that is that uh, the main cause of suicide is being a recipient of handouts. Now, I have a a follow-up question to that, but I need to do more research. I need to talk to people who know more than I do on that topic before I share with you um, what that question. But there you go. Uh, the Inuits and the Native Americans, handouts cause suicides. It certainly correlates. Is it necessarily a cause? We don't know 100%, and I don't know how we would know, but it sure does look that way, and it certainly makes sense. And um, from the perspective of ancient Jewish wisdom, not earning your living, incredibly destructive, incredibly destructive. Um, So important, by the way, even, and I I, uh, discussed this recently, at an event I spoke at in Kansas City, um, and that is that when you are retired, if you are retired and you still have young children, you're causing them damage by them not seeing you work because they don't understand that what you're living on is the income from work you've done in the years before they were born, perhaps, for children not to see dad go off to work, for children not to see father working and earning money, destructive and dangerous guys so please uh, that's another reason to spurn the idea of retirement it's just not good and it's not healthy the website oh i told you there's one last piece of news didn't i yes a last news item for the week of course i how could i leave this one out and that is that it's just been announced that uh, daniel lappin is going to be going six rounds in a boxing ring on September the 25th. And I just thought you'd all be like to be among the first to know this information. Now, it's really important um, that you do not confuse Rabbi Daniel Lappin with the Ukrainian light heavyweight champion Daniel Lappin. Uh, it is him, it's that Daniel Lappin who is eight inches taller than me and a lot fitter than me, who will be going into the ring with the Polish boxer, Pavel Martiniuk, uh, in London on September the 25th. So that is the last news item of the week. Uh, Daniel Lappin, the light heavyweight from Ukraine, will be going into the ring with a Polish light heavyweight for six rounds in London on September the 25th. That is not me, that is him but uh, same name and uh, i will just say that uh, when my son wanted to do um, jujitsu or karate or one of those things he was interested in it and and not because other kids were doing he he was homeschooled he was really a remarkable um, young man he's now a remarkable not so young man well he's still young Uh, but at any rate he wanted to do karate i strongly encouraged him 
to do boxing rather than karate, which I'm happy to say he did. And the reason is because it's much more practical. Uh, if, if you are a skilled boxer, you really stand a pretty good chance of being able to take care of yourself. And uh, I mean, obviously, if, uh, if you're up against uh, in a knife fight and you didn't bring a knife, that's probably not so good. But you know what I mean. In general, um, it's very much harder to be effective at real-world bad street self-defense with karate or with, um, or, or with jiu-jitsu, much harder. It can be done if you really, really, really get good. And I, I knew somebody who was. But for the most part, for, for a young guy who's going to devote, you know, uh, a, a year or two to it at, at best, in a year or two, you're going to become much more capable at self-defense if you have developed the skills at boxing. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, and again, if you know anything about boxing, you'll know right away why that is more effective. Mixed martial arts, again, uh, similar, obviously. Um, if, uh, if you can box you can really walk the streets with a little in Democrat-controlled cities, right? Cities that have been controlled by Democrats for 40 years. Uh, you can even walk those cities um, if you are a skilled boxer like my son is. Um, but if you want to walk the sunlit streets of America's nicer towns, predominantly Christian towns, you don't need boxing or karate or mixed martial arts. Just walk, have a smile on your face, and everyone will wish you a good day. So that's it for today's show, everybody. Thank you for being part of the show. The website is rabbidaniellappin.com. And what happens if you do want to explore faith a little further? What if you do get a deeper understanding as to, well, what is the Bible all about? I would like to recommend that you watch and listen to the free half-hour program um, called Scrolling Through Scripture. Go to my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and look for it, and uh, you will be able to hear or see me teach on the first verses of the book of Genesis. Um, you'll pardon me, I'm not, I'm not uh, trying to be self-aggrandizing at all, because I stress this is not me at all. It's uh, I'm teaching ancient Jewish wisdom, which I was privileged to be taught, and um, and that's why I'm privileged, by the way, not because my skin is white. I'm privileged because I was taught ancient Jewish wisdom as a as a young man, and um, and that's what I am teaching. And if you want an understanding of why the Bible has had the impact that it has had, and uh, what it does for people to this very day, if you want to sort of get a little bit of a grounding as to how you can start sculpting your own F of faith, one of your five Fs. If you, you want to know about how to start shaping that a little bit, go to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and try and, and watch the first half hour. It's absolutely free. Just enjoy it. The first half hour program of scrolling through Scripture. Let me know what you think, by the way. I really would love to hear from you. That's it for today, my friends. We ran a, a, a little bit late. I'm sorry, but it is a podcast, so you can stop. And... Um, I want to wish you a wonderful week of success in your five F's, success with your families, with your friendships, with your finances, with your fitness, and especially today with your faith. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Till next week, God bless.